Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. See that? That's right. You don't want none of that. Welcome back, friend. How's the fitness routine going? I'm proud to announce Chester and I are balls deep in Tybo. And I dare say, I think I could kick Billy Blank's ass. Yeah, that's an open invitation. Show up here, Billy, and I'll yank your black belt off and choke you with it. Right, Chester. What a pussy. Come on in, friend. I know you've got my back. Hmm, that's better. There's nothing like practicing a little Taibo with a Marlboro hanging out your mouth. So smoke them if you got them, friends, and drink those glasses to the bottom. Cause old Drew Blood has a tell to tell. Oh, hey, I didn't see you there. You know, Drew Blood's Dark Tales is only one of the many shows on this network you could be listening to. We hope you'll subscribe to our entire lineup, including Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Fear from the Heartland, and Horror Hill. All available on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit simplyscarypodcast.com to become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you get our entire catalog ad-free and available to download or stream. A bargain. And now, back to the show. So tonight, we're joined by our old pal Aaron Vleck, pronounced Aaron Vleck. Oh, thank you, Jeff. 
who you can hear more from in a whole bunch of past episodes. This one's a Lovecraftian tale of loss and lineage, so without further delay, I give you, from that amazing author, Ms. Erin Vleck, Scion of the Strange Dark House on the Hill. It's said that grief and tragedy, relentless trackers of the human soul, burrow hungrily within the folds of certain familial lines. Forsaken others and taken root to bear a dark fruit bloody of seed, such families endure generation after generation, surviving by sheer force of will as they cast their mutated lines far flung in a field into an unknowable future. These families and their unfortunate offspring clutch what dignity they may to their troubled bosoms, as this murmuration of sorrow feeds upon them like a murder of putrescent vultures upon an ever-waiting feast. Do not think I set upon these pages to flog myself for pity's sake in the public eye, but rather to offer a cautionary warning tale to the wise who would express their wisdom. This and nothing more. It had been one year to the very day since I had laid my beloved wife Lydia to rest. That is not strictly accurate, of course, as I had received no body to dress in its finery, only to be consigned to that sad and melancholy box, and then covered over with a cold and merciless earth of eternity. Lydia had undertaken a brief voyage by sea in search of certain manuscripts germane to her many years of devoted study. It was an expedition ill-advised and thoroughly against my wishes, but in the end I could brook no legitimate objection to her plans, and so had relented and surrendered my reluctant blessings. And thus did my sweet Lydia set sail upon the sea. That so short a journey of some 200 miles along our own familiar coastline and during the bright season of summer seas and blue skies should conclude in such a tragic manner only foreshadows the gravity of my opening preamble. For some wholly unfathomable reason, whether by folly, negligence, or an excess of foul drink, the navigator of the Cadeth a fair vessel hailing out from Boston Harbor on her maiden voyage failed to perceive the lighthouse's frantic signals from ashore to turn back and head once more into the safe waters of the open sea. For whatever reason, such entreaties went unheeded, and the Cadeth went sharply aground upon some hidden jut of land concealed by high tide and undetected by all hands upon the deck. A sudden fog was offered by way of an explanation for the misadventure, but all told, some fifteen hands, the captain, and two seasoned officers, and all fifteen passengers aboard went into the sea, and the caddis herself went down to her final resting place beneath the cold, dark waves. Of the lost, all but three washed later upon those saddened shores, bloated, their flesh torn asunder and utterly bereft of life. The three souls claimed by the sea included my wife, of whom no trace was found. I bore my grief as best I could, and the funeral service was well attended by many friends and colleagues from Miskatonic University, 
where I held a comfortable and secure post in that venerable institution's research library, and where my wife herself had recently attained the august position of chief librarian in the antiquarian stacks. I had much to consider in the management of my grief and kept its expression under the strictest control. For as good fortune would have it, my wife and I had been blessed with a young son, just nine years of age at the season of his mother's passage from life into precious memory. He was a quiet and taciturn lad was my Obadiah, a sickly delicate boy but I vowed not to unnecessarily burden him with the weight of my grief as he struggled to shoulder his own. We endured in silence for the most part, and so the time passed slowly and I succumbed all too easily before the languid pretense that all was well with the lad and with myself. That is, until the one-year anniversary of that sad and miserable day that had cast us both, father and son, forever adrift as surely as it had the beautiful woman who had filled our days with laughter and merriment. I was started awake in my bed that morning by a loud crash when the limb of an ancient elm tore by a mighty gale had come bursting through one of the windows on the ground floor. Phillips, my manservant, was already taking stock of things when I gained the parlor and paused in shock as I beheld the damage. I hesitated for only a moment, surrendering matters into Philip's capable hands, and went in search of my son who had yet to appear. He was nowhere to be found, but upon a closer examination of his rooms I made a curious and confounding discovery. On the table beside Obadiah's bed lay a heavily carved bronze box, its lid thrown back and several items strewn carelessly across the bed, and my son was nowhere to be seen. I recognized this box as the solitary gift my wife had bequeathed our son in the event of her death. I had no knowledge of the box's contents and had always respected this small privacy between mother and son. I knew only that the box was to remain sealed until the event of the one-year anniversary of her passing. I did not know if the box's entire contents were still here or if the lad had secreted something upon his person before departing for unknown destinations. The days spent searching the house and village for some hint of what might have happened to Obadiah yield nothing but a growing mystery and the fear that the ravenous talons of the tragic macabre were once again making merry upon the sad entrails of my dwindling family. I set about reviewing the contents of the box when a single object of immediate interest caught my eye. A hefty leather-bound journal fashioned of an unknown mottled green hide, its title in a golden twisted script of delicate drifting coils and many elongated flourishes. What was particularly of note about this journal, before ever I opened its densely illustrated and annotated pages was this. I had absolutely no idea that my wife kept such a tome, or to what purpose, but one clearly kept hidden and secreted away from mine own prying eyes. I sat down upon Obadiah's bed, and it was not until eventide and the tall gaunt shadows gathered closely around me in eager anticipation that my head cleared and I set aside Lydia's journal and returned once more to the world at hand. 
The book was an intoxicating and heady revelation of staggering import that threw a long and much-needed light into the silent dusky corners and forbidden hallways of my wife's family history and the whole of our life together since first we had met. Though in some elder script I could still glean the nature and import of its contents from my work at Miskatonic. The relevance of this book for my poor child, however, rocked me to my very soul. Within the hour I had packed a small valise, tucked the journal into my coat pocket, and then made my way to the port. There I booked passage northward on the only vessel that would have me at such a late notice, and with no thought for my own comfort, for I knew with certain conviction to what destination my son had embarked the shrouded city of his mother's birth and family line. Lydia had understandably concealed this legacy from me, but she had made provision to bestow it fully upon her only son and heir. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Thus did I set forth that night upon the decks of the merchant schooner Dagon's Folly. She was an ancient, barnacle-encrusted vessel, decrepit to the mast and laden heavy as a pregnant whale with the foul reek of rotten timbers and oozing barrels of fetid oil. But she was the only ship in the coastal fleet that made port in Innsmouth. The voyage of just two days seemed to linger on for a lifetime, the crew, some five hands, and the captain and his mate kept themselves to themselves and below decks much of the time, which suited me very well. They were a shambling lot, swathed in their greatcoats against the hailing blows of salt and sea, their faces concealed by damp, grimy rags. They spoke nary a word to me, not even the captain. But when chance or the demands of the voyage brought us into close proximity, they turned sharply away and scuttled off as quickly as they could to some task. But I caught snippets of deep hoarse laughter as I passed them by, and passed them by as quickly as I could I most assuredly did. All night long I was tormented by the guttural chirping of their ribald sea shanties which partook of no tongue I had a familiarity with and brought to mind no human tongue at all. The grunts and cries of what I hoped was no more than their enthusiastic feasting almost drove me mad. And when in my cabin I always barred the door with whatever was at hand to keep that detestable crew at bay. Many times I heard the rusted door handle of my cabin rattling, followed by laughter and obscene chittering. 
I lingered on deck as little as possible during the light of day even though the crew kept their cabins until nightfall. The decks were always damp and slippery with a green ooze and moss and seaweed hung from the masts and sails like Spanish moss in the deepest bayou. This solitude afforded me ample time to spend in my quarters, such as they were, studying Lydia's journal. These quarters were nothing but a tiny storage hold with a foul-smelling mat flung onto the floor for me to sleep on. I reposed instead upon the bare cold floor, when at odd and irregular moments I was overtaken by a restless and furtive sleep. My wife's journal was a thing of curious wonder, born of a strange and alien beauty upon coarse parchment the color of amber and covered over with a cacophony of exquisite calligraphic script. Illustrations and illuminated miniatures galore, and portraits of absolutely fantastical beings out of legend poured from every page, all strung together with the glyphs and sigils and ciphers of the archmage, and the unmistakable signs and seals of the recalcitrant blasphemer. That the creatures and people inhabiting these pages resembled nothing of this earth gave me only the briefest pause. For truth be told, there were certain ancient volumes in the elder stacks at Miskatonic University Library that openly conveyed to interested researchers the full history of such beings and their hidden secret strongholds and byways among us. These legends and my wife's journal confirmed one central and critical fact most germane to my own life as it unraveled before me. Lydia herself hailed from this strange lineage, with its deepest roots in the dying seaport of Innsmouth. It was clearly to Innsmouth that our son Obadiah had ventured forth to find, to find his family. So it was with trepidation and a great sigh of relief when I finally set foot on Innsmouth's rotten port. Beginning what sad misadventure I could not guess, but at least glad to be part in company forever with that crew of miscreants of the high seas aboard Dagon's Folly. I vowed I would crawl on broken and bloodied hands and knees or swim back to New York rather than book a return passage on that accursed vessel. When we had docked all hands, the captain and his mate, in company with a swarm of things that were vomited up from the hold, strange man-like creatures, hunched and drooling, poured onto the city streets like a plague of rats, only to disappear much too quickly from sight into the crumbling warehouses and festering public houses that lined the dilapidated caves. I was left engulfed in a foreboding silence that swallowed me as I stood there pondering my first visions of Innsmouth. The town loomed dark and dismal before me, haughty and accusing as death itself. The whole of it sprang from a series of low hills like some nocturnal blooming fungi, its crown upon a ragged peak topped with an ancient crumbling cathedral, a single pale light in its belfry. I saw then it was no house of the holy, but rather a house of grotesque and monumental proportions. The entire vision unfolding before me seemed fashioned by some preternatural hand from a single miasmatic substance from an elder geologic epoch, and I wondered briefly at the manner of folk who had settled here so long ago, and from what distant shores had they held. 
I wandered in a daze through Innsmouth's warren of silent, gnarled streets. The spectral house reigning crown-like atop its central peak my only guide. That stately abode beckoned imperviously, demanding that I approach as though I were nothing more than an adorned subject bowing before the throne. The streets and shops were oddly deserted, bleak and shuddered as if against an impending storm. If the place did not tremble with a secret furtive vitality, I would have it down as abandoned and devoid of all life as it stood silent and awaited the final ravages of time. I climbed those twisted streets and alleys higher and higher as if I would ascend to the very portal of heaven itself and the stars beyond. House after house of every possible size, shape, and description, all of them decrepit and hearkening to centuries long past, crowded countless narrow streets. These abodes seemed to glare menacingly as I passed among them. Shop and smithy, public house great and small, their signs swinging in the gentle breeze. Even the constable's guard shack lay unattended. Not even a solitary tabby patrolled its turf, suspicious of this stranger parading uninvited through the center of town. Winding his way toward that bleak and many-spired peak of faded gothic splendor, as it gazed down upon all lesser creation below. When finally I stood before the house of my wife's ancestors atop its clouded pinnacle, I gasped in utter shock. For here, huddled tightly around the house in ordered rows, filling the yard and spilling out into the dusty streets beyond, were the inhabitants of Innsmouth. Homeowners, ragged merchants and aged cobblers, tinkers, beggars, and even a few constables in their faded blue greatcoats, all gathered around the house where they held silent vigil, as hushed as any tomb. I moved along the throng, pressing against the mass of gathered bodies, but not one of them paid me the slightest heed. When I had finally taken stock of things, the house seemed not of this world at all but rather like a dream woven of dust and cobwebs and moonbeams, and all such things as compel the mind's eye to gaze upon hidden forests and forbidden glades where thoughts hide and frolic to whisper among the shadows. I reached the broad staircase to the house and found it quite real, though again not a single hand raised to bar my entry to my own dead wife's ancestral manse and into which without preamble or delay I quickly gained entrance. While I still had seen no evidence that my son Obadiah had reached the dismal seaport caves of Innsmouth, or found his mother's moldering childhood home, or discovered any remaining familial contacts, the house was indeed a thing of monstrous grandeur that left me tingling in fear and delight. As I stood in the grand foyer, my eyes were naturally drawn upwards to the only light which cascaded down from a dozen windows lining the central open spire that twisted as an open chasm many stories above my head, terminating like a gnarled and pointed finger stabbing accusingly at the heavens. A flood of glittering dust danced within the golden light and filled the great hall with the specter of fairy life. I noticed then the regal staircase that climbed the wall to my right, 
and without pause I ascended through floor after floor of salons, elegant dressing rooms, and stately bedchambers. Many obviously uninhabited and empty, but for a lifetime of dust and decay, and the leavings of rodents, and threadbare tapestries. Other chambers clearly held the secrets of much more recent occupancy. It was on the uppermost floor beneath that grim spire that I made the first discovery. It was in a suite of rooms furnished as an alchemist's lair, containing crumbling worm-eaten tomes without number lining the walls, and beakers, bottles, jars, and decanters of all shapes and colors and a vast panoply of fantastical machines. Devices, gizmos, and gadgets, hoses and wires whose purpose I did not wish to even fathom a guess. There was also a small pile of carefully folded clothing and a fine coat, all belonging to my son Obadiah. I called out to the boy but was met with a silence so complete it seemed ready to suck the very breath from my lungs. I returned to the grand foyer, seeing no reason to explore the highest and most desolate peak of the spire just yet. I had not seen Obadiah among the throng crowding the front yard, so I decided to see if there was perhaps a basement or root cellar. On the ground floor, I discovered an identical grand staircase lost almost completely in the gloom that coiled its way down into the very bowels of earth beneath the house. I could swear upon my immortal soul that no such staircase had been there when I first entered the manse. Yet here it was, no less a thing of splendor than its counterpart. I could think of nothing but to grab a candle broom from a nearby table and light it from a pair of flickering sconces that lay to either side of the staircase, themselves having seemingly just materialized as well. But before I could descend the very first step, a great gong rang overhead that threatened to rock the house to its foundations. To my great dismay, I heard the sound of huge shutters being flung open within the highest reaches of the wicked spire, followed by the flapping of leathern wings like those of hideous preternatural bats. This gave way to the front doors bursting open and all the people of Innsmouth flooded into the house as on a tide flowing silently down the grand staircase to whatever mysteries lay concealed beneath my feet. The townsfolk seemed carried upon a gust of mighty wind, and I was forced to grab onto the marble banister for my very life to avoid being swept off my feet and borne asunder. As quickly as the tide appeared, it had passed me by and I stood once more gazing into that abysmal chasm. I steadied my resolve and quickly descended into the darkness, the meager light of the candle broom my only but most welcome companion. I descended floor after floor, wherein a verse and duplicate of the house bore deeply into the earth. A tumultuous roar from the stairwell and a throbbing cadence of many hundreds of voices rose in discordant song and chant triumphant, accompanied by a beating of drums that echoed the thunderous pounding within my own chest. Heavy oily tendrils of noxious incense borne upon other vile and odious fumes wafted from below, bringing to mind the charnel house. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs 
or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie.com. That's A N G I dot com. You can live out your Master Chef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well, inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24/7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com/talktous. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I longed to run back to the light of a wholesome day, but I could not. Not without discovering the fate of my son and wresting him from whatever fiends had taken him. So I ventured forth, downward into the darkness, submerged into that unknowable chasm, if not without fear, at least bolstered by the need to find my son. The bottom of the staircase fanned out like the mouth of a great antediluvian conch and emptied into an amphitheater hewn from the rock. Its rough vaulted ceiling disappeared into mist that rose from a grotto filled with effervescent green waters that frothed wildly and lapped upon dead shores. All was lit from below by some source I could not see. The incessant dripping of luminescent ooze from a thousand gnarled stalactites provided yet another fiendish cadence, accompanying the echoes of the throng dancing off the tabernacle walls. All the denizens of Innsmouth knelt reverently before a crude stone altar and a throne some twenty feet in height, upon which sat a twisted creature, spawned of legend within the depths of depraved madness. The fiend possessed gigantic leathern wings and a heaving muscular body, a bilious and unholy melange of creatures born of both land and sea. The thing bore a ghastly visage resplendent with a writhing mass of appendages like those of the giant octopus or colossal squid, and I marveled at the behemoth's loathsome grandeur, its body more than fifteen feet in height. The faces of the townspeople came more clearly into view as I grew accustomed to a darkness broken only by flickering candles and the luminescent glow of the grotto, and I shuddered in disgust. Broad, fleshy lips trembled in silent worship, while large, unblinking eyes gazed in rapture at the altar, 
The hairless pates and sickly green pallor were those of the Deep Ones. Creatures I had believed to be nothing more than the rantings of fevered imaginations of the fiends of the opium pit. My shock was tempered by what I had gleaned from the pages of my wife's journal. For here before me crouched and capered every possible configuration of monstrosity. Some looked merely like unfortunate misshapen humans with their weak but trachean features, while others bore evidence of this lineage in such flagrant fullness that they could never hope to walk along any streets save those of Innsmouth. Still others frolicked and cavorted unclothed in the waters of that noxious grotto which clearly gave passage to the sea and allowed these later supplicants to attend this open celebration of every known blasphemy. The drums beat on and on, their malign cadence rattling my very bones. Yet still no hand moved to throw me out of this unholy tabernacle. I might have been invisible to them, except when they stepped aside and made room for me to move among them, towards the altar and the thing in all its glory enthroned upon it. What compelled me toward that daze was the two figures that appeared from out the mists as regal and robed officiants and commanded my gaze. One was an inhumanly tall, proud, and willow-thin creature, clad in flowing diaphanous sea-green robes and crowned with a diadem of gems that twinkled like the stars in the heavens, its face concealed behind a heavy veil. The other figure was that of a small boy, my son Obadiah, standing proud and unafraid before the altar, unbound, unfettered, and clearly of his own free will. I gazed then more closely at the tall crowned figure as the veil fell away and the face of my wife Lydia appeared, transformed beyond imagination Yet unmistakably, she now fully fledged into the terrible inheritance of her familial line. I nearly collapsed in a paroxysm of insanity as my mind grappled for safer shores of disquietude than this. There she stood, her large unblinking eyes and broad mouth ennobled by something neither Batrachian nor human that defined the deepest secrets of her ancestral line. Before her stood her son, my son, her prince and heir, as he was being presented to his liege, a thing far older than this small rock in space where simple folk like myself had made our home for not so very long at all. I stood in terrible awe, my feet as if grown from the rock beneath me forbidden any attempt to flee. What would be the point? The smallest knot upon these creatures could overpower me and consign me at their leisure to whatever watery subterranean burial they saw fit. I realized suddenly, as if startled awake from some endless dream, that I was moving faster and faster toward that enraptured tripartite officiant body. The tall figure of my wife bowed in obeisance before that abysmal throne as she presented our son as an offering whereupon the behemoth stroked Obadiah's face with a slimy tentacle and unfurled its mighty wings. I lunged toward the altar. The throng surrounded me as a sea of limpid, damp hands brushed my face and body as I passed among them, 
not to forbid me, but to partake of me in some hideous way that made me shudder and twist away violently from their softly probing ministrations. Lydia turned finally toward me, her face unreadable in its rictus gaze of dread majesty, a high and royal priestess in state before her lord. I then beheld Obadiah's face more clearly. The sickly pallor that had plagued the lad since birth had burned away in the blaze of triumphant rapture he now attained. His face shone with a strange light and his large lidless eyes and broad lips smiled upon me, the flickering of recognition plain for all to see. I was his father, but I quavered before that gaze and feared what fate awaited me in the coming moments. Each moment an eon frozen in timeless amber, each breath a world that came into being then faded into the timeless starless void from which eternity is born. I shut my eyes tight and surrendered to that against which I could not offer the least resistance nor defense. A hand shook me roughly and my eyes shot open. It was Phillips, my manservant waking me with a tray containing my morning repast. I jumped up and looked around. A dream? Had I only been dreaming of those foreboding caverns and the dark abominations cavorting within? Had I but dreamed of my wife and son? Was I mad? Utterly stark raven mad? Having never left my home but having succumbed to some delirium? Imagined it all? Phillips dispelled that nonsense with a few words that left me even more ponderous than before. He had been making his rounds through the house that morning as was his custom in my absence, and happening past my chamber he heard me, snoring. He had gone to tell Cook to prepare my breakfast, then returned to wake me for the day, having absolutely no idea when or under what means I had returned home. In this we were in agreement for I had no idea how I had been delivered back to my bedchamber when but a moment ago I was standing in that blighted subterranean tabernacle. Availing myself of much-needed refreshment and attempting to take stock of things, I noticed a small book on my nightstand. Picking it up, I saw it was my wife's journal, her grimoire an account of a royal family of semi-human Batrachian deep ones who lived and worked among us unseen, unsuspected, and upon what dark calling, what mission in this world of humanity I dared not speculate. I opened the journal, and an envelope inscribed with a delicate and familiar hand fell into my lap. I hesitated a moment, just staring at it. When I finally gathered my wits and read what lay upon those pages, I knew that my comfortable, though grief-filled life was at an end. Nothing would ever be the same again, for as is said, one cannot unknow a thing. Whatever might befall me, I had most definitely been summoned, but also given the right of refusal should my mind and wits prove too frail of constitution to stoutly answer the demands of the unknown, the unknowable. The next day, I broke a firm vow I had taken under the strictest oath just one short week ago and found myself once again upon the slimy, foul-smelling decks of Dagon's Folly, 
heading north under full sail in a light breeze toward the final port of call in her itinerary of shadowy destinations, Innsmouth. There I would have no recourse but to surrender and submit fully to an unspeakably horrifying yet irresistible offer from my wife. And that was Scion of the Strange Dark House on the Hill by Aaron Vleck. A good reminder why they do blood tests before you get married. Who knows where the hell she's been? A little about the author. Aaron Vleck is a storyteller whose work primarily focuses on the trickster as bringer of the lie and proponent of disquieting humors. Many of her short stories delve into the original tales of the djinn and a universal imagining of the Native American coyote. Some works are historical and setting, while others hail from the contemporary and urban landscape. She indulges more and more in the reimagining of classic themes of Lovecraftian horror and has a keen fondness for the occult detective. Erin is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, where she spent most of her time writing. Her work has appeared in many places around the net, including Ghastly Tales Podcast, The Wicked Library, Nocturnal Transmissions, and Creeperoni, as well as in numerous anthologies. She was shortlisted for a Parsec Award and appeared on Ellen Datlow's recommended reading list a few years ago. She's also been a regular on Drew Blood's Dark Tales, which, frankly, dwarves all those other achievements. Thank you, Aaron. Always a pleasure. And do old Drew Blood a favor, would you? Subscribe to his podcast wherever you do your listening and leave him a five-star review and a kind word, even if you're listening on YouTube. He needs soldiers on all fronts to win this battle, and he appreciates it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all the other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at ChillinTalesForDarkNights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to their entire audio archive, all ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all the latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with them each and every week. Oh, and you can find Drew Blood on Facebook and Instagram, and sometimes Twitter. The Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast is accepting submissions, friend. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on the show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment, 10 bananas. this is where we part ways at least till next week so grab a drink for the road friend and if you run into Billy Blanks out there you can point him my way very good but the air not hit back a big shout out and thank you to all my patrons hey y'all worry not things will pick up pretty soon 
I'm just taking a hiatus to finish this audiobook, which is just about wrapped up. Thanks for your patience. I love you. And may the wind be at your back. May the road rise up to meet you. And until next week, just keep doing what you do best and go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Good night, y'all. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.